You are listening to a podcast from The National. President Trump addressed world leaders on Tuesday at the United Nations headquarters, the first time he's done so since taking office. And he didn't mince his words. Trump warned he may have to totally destroy North Korea, his words not mine, and closer to home called out Iran, lashing out at the regime in Tehran for again, according to him, exporting violence, bloodshed, and chaos. He was quite harsh on the Tehran regime, stating that it was a criminal regime, and expected to see some changes in American attitudes towards it. Trump also used his speech to highlight key policy approaches, including military engagements without arbitrary timetables, and said that he would be supporting sovereignty and the nation-state. I'm Mina Al-Arabi, and you're listening to a special edition of The Nationals Beyond the Headlines, coming to you from New York City. No nation on earth has an interest in seeing this band of criminals arm itself with nuclear weapons and missiles. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. I'm joined here by London Bureau Chief Damien McElroy and our D.C.-based correspondent, Joyce Karam, who are also in New York to cover the U.N. General Assembly. Today, we're going to discuss the big three takeaways from Trump's controversial address to the world. Thank you for joining, Damien and Joyce. Thank Thank you. If I can turn to you first, Damien, we had some strong words from Donald Trump in his address on Tuesday. What are your thoughts? Do you think that the solution is to threaten North Korea and call its leader Rocketman? I think Donald Trump has, believe it or not, a strategy, and his strategy is to try and uh, use very vivid language, to use the sort of language he thinks would work with Rocketman, with uh, someone who is a caricature-type leader. Uh, don't forget the North Koreans have a history of this. Um, the current leader's father was lampooned in um, a very famous movie about a decade ago. So there is a history here of trying to do the unorthodox to tackle the unorthodox. The question with Donald Trump is, does he actually want to push this further, or does there come a point when the language takes over and he has his actions have to be as vivid as um, the language he's used? I think it's a good question as to whether North Korea will respond in um, you know in an inflammatory way to this to decide to take umbrage and to ratchet things up even further. We don't know. You know there is there is a genuine question about. The mental health, the mental, the state of mind of the North Korean leader, and Trump's language is therefore a gamble. Antonio Guterres, in his speech, said we have to be careful not to sleepwalk into war with North Korea. Joyce, what are your thoughts? I think primarily uh, Trump wanted to say that all options are on the table with uh, North Korea. I think uh, coming from Washington, if you see some uh, reports there. Uh, There are some fears that uh, actually some think tanks, people in the Pentagon, have started planning uh, military contingency uh, plans for the White House if they were uh, needed in North Korea. To me today, listening to the American president beyond the colorful language, 
there is a clear message to China, to Russia, and to North Korea that if the provocative actions continue and if this is not resolved diplomatically, the U.S. could uh, take military uh, action. Uh, I don't think this president gives uh, much weight to what the U.N., Uh, perhaps says. Uh, He called it a a club of uh, wealthy people before he uh, came to office. Uh, So uh, I I don't, I don't, I wouldn't underestimate the military threat that Trump uh, has presented in the speech. Uh, And if you see polling, uh, polling institutes, for example, in the U.S., like Gallup just did a poll last week that shows a majority of Americans would support a military option if it were necessary against North Korea. Now, the the UN's just imposed the toughest sanctions it's ever imposed on North Korea uh, just last, well, a couple of weeks ago. And of course, that came with the support of Russia and China. So, Damien, do you think that indicates that actually the Russians and the Chinese realize that this is quite serious and equally concerned, or that Trump would have to go go it alone if, if push came to shove? I think there's no doubt the Chinese and the Russians are concerned. They don't want um, Kim freelancing. They don't want him taking this to another level. The real question, though, is what is the what is the end game here? Is the end game to make sure that Kim doesn't get a nuclear weapon? Is the end game actually to maybe allow him to get a nuclear weapon, but to make sure he doesn't hit any territories with the missiles that he's testing at the moment? And, you know, especially does not fully weaponize that nuclear weapon and and then have it as a four-minute threat. So I think... We're at a point where it is increasingly unclear um, what the trigger for Washington is, despite the language. As long as Kim keeps firing missiles into the sea, there doesn't seem to be any punishment. But what if he hits somewhere? If he declares he has a nuclear weapon and says, I'm not testing anymore, do we then get talks? I think that's probably the more likely thing the White House is pushing for. Well, the issue with talks is, of course, the other nuclear program that is of concern was the Iranian nuclear program. And some people said that if you could succeed with Iran, that could become a model of how do you deal with other countries with either clandestine um, nuclear programs or have nuclear ambitions. So I guess if the first takeaway is strong language on North Korea, then the second takeaway from this speech is really strong language on Iran. The Iranian government masks a corrupt dictatorship behind the false guise of a democracy. It has turned a wealthy country with a rich history and culture into an economically depleted rogue state whose chief exports are violence, bloodshed, and chaos. The longest suffering victims of Iran's leaders are, in fact, its own people. Joyce, if I can turn to you to discuss um, Trump's statement on Iran, it was quite strong and showed that he really doesn't seem to believe in the nuclear deal, something we've known since the presidential campaign. But what are the next steps? What's possible? 
Uh, well, I mean, of course, he didn't hide it uh, on Tuesday. He doesn't like the deal. He does. He never liked the deal. And I don't think he will ever like this deal. The question is, will he keep the deal? Does he want to renegotiate the deal? Or does he, is he just bluffing, uh, speaking to his uh, domestic uh, audience and not to the people that were in the room? Uh, The answer to that, I think we will see it in uh, four weeks from now, uh, on October 15th, when the deadline uh, comes for the U.S., for the administration to send notification to Congress, whether to certify or decertify the agreement. If the U.S. president takes a dramatic move and decertifies the agreement, that means we are entering a whole new phase uh, in the uh, nuclear uh, deal that would open the door for Congress to reimpose nuclear sanctions on on Iran and uh, something that uh, Trump and his ambassador here, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, want to use that to bring Iran back to the table. The experts we spoke to uh, after the speech said this is not going to happen. Iran will not come back to the table, and what more likely uh, scenario is to happen is the U.S. withdrawing from the deal and then the Europeans sticking with it. I think there is one little chink, though. Um, We may get on to this later, but when the French president spoke, he did speak about tackling the ballistic missile threat with Iran, and that does give some wriggle room to either go on a glide path towards increased sanctions or to... Um, to have uh, new negotiations and new, a new formula of talks um, with Tehran. Well, of course, the UN has sanctions against Iran specifically on the ballistic missiles that they have, and that is also a program that um, causes much concern internationally, but of course for the region where those countries are within reach of this mis- those missiles. Before we go on to the missile program and the, and the wider problems with Iran, I wanted to touch base back to your point, Joyce, about increased sanctions and whether Congress was to reimpose sanctions. But at the heart of it, the Americans could never get the same sort of sanctions regime through the UN. The Russians, the Europeans, the Chinese would never go back to that. So would it really impact Iran, especially since most of the sanctions that impact Iran out of D.C. today are linked to terrorism anyway? Well, uh, I mean, if you ask the previous administration, the Obama administration, they would say it is because of the sanctions that Iran came to the table. Uh, but you're right. To your point, unilateral sanctions from the U.S. will not be enough. And it is very unlikely that the U.N. would come back and impose sanctions on Iran if Trump were to uh, decertify the deal, I think it would be mostly for domestic uh, reasons and because he doesn't uh, like the deal and to appease Israel and in in the Middle East. I think that's the the framework that this could be uh, understood from. I mean, if you looked at what uh, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu was tweeting uh, today his face in the audience. I mean, the guy was thrilled. There is no uh, doubt about it. So I think everyone is waiting what's going to happen on Sunday, October the 15th, and whether Trump will send uh, uh, certification to the Congress or just uh, pull out from that. Damien, can I ask you about European allies and especially the UK? How do they feel about the nuclear deal and if Trump decides to walk away from it? They're absolutely committed to it. They think it 
keeps a lid on a problem that they spent a very long time trying to solve. Um, they take the argument that Iran has been emboldened and is acting much more aggressively around the region. But they say this is an issue that can be dealt with diplomatically and it should continue to be separated from the gold standard, in their view, um, uh, nuclear halt that they've got through the agreement. So, And indeed, you know, Iran is playing into this. There's every indication that Iran would stay in the deal if America pulled out of it, and so too would Russia and, and China and the Europeans. And you would have some sort, some form of normality. You know, most of the rehabilitation of Iran would, would continue in commerce and things like that. So you would then enter a situation where the big question would be, does America shoot itself in the foot by doing this? Is there, in fact, more pressure they can get on Iran by trying to get other issues addressed in diplomacy? And that's where the Europeans are, trying to say we can, we can extend the pressure to other areas. Well, that's really important because the other areas are what are of huge concern to Arab uh, countries and especially those that are close to Iran and have suffered from some of Iran's um, nefarious activities as um, they see them. So if, as you say about that pressure, I mean, what could be done to actually get the Iranians to back off, whether it's in Iraq or in Syria or Yemen, seeing as they do feel emboldened? Well, I think the big problem is um, Iran is pursuing an agenda. It has reveled, really, the leadership, especially the hardline leadership, in all the gains it has made. And so how does diplomacy engage with that? How does diplomacy stop that? I think, really, you can only raise the cost to Iran of that. And um, any European hopes that there is a diplomatic path to containing that um, haven't been fleshed out. There's been, apart from, as I say, you know, sanctions on ballistic missile development, there's no real concrete measures in the cupboard. I agree with what Damien is saying, but also uh, as we wait for the Iran policy review to uh, to be finished by this administration, uh, there will be a big regional component. And I think uh, Trump uh, alluded to it today, speaking about Yemen, about Hezbollah, about Iran supporting uh, what he called a criminal uh, regime uh, in Syria. Uh, I think this gives us a, a glimpse into what the U.S., uh, where it could be headed. Uh, there is already, if you speak to Gulf Africa, officials, they're much happier with the Trump team uh, on the level of uh, intelligence cooperation, whether in Bahrain, uh, whether uh, in, uh, in Iraq, or whether, uh, you know, in areas in Syria. Uh, so, and in Syria, particularly, I think we, what's happening in the Rizur is fascinating, and, and who will take uh, the area and what it means for Iran and, and for the uh, conflict. But in particular, when it comes to Iran's regional behavior, this administration is, this U.S. administration is more hawkish and, and aggressive in encountering uh, that. And we could see it on the intelligence uh, cooperation, uh, military uh, support, 
um, and countering uh, Iranian uh, influence in a way that would uh, beef up, for example, the Iraqi uh, government and counter Shia militias, whether in Iraq or in, in Syria. So we're beginning to see glimpses of what a Trump doctrine actually looks like uh, nine months after he came to the White House. These are country-specific affairs that we've been talking about. And of course, we can touch upon his uh, push when it comes to Venezuela also and taking a marked different approach than Barack Obama, his predecessor. However, one of the issues that also came up in his speech repeatedly was the support for sovereignty for nation states. We do not expect diverse countries to share the same cultures, traditions, or even systems of government. But we do expect all nations to uphold these two core sovereign duties, to respect the interests of their own people and the rights of every other sovereign nation. This is the beautiful vision of this institution. And this is the foundation for cooperation and success. Strong, sovereign nations let diverse countries with different values, different cultures, and different dreams not just coexist, but work side by side on the basis of mutual respect. So, Damien, I want to ask you about Trump's approach to sovereignty, but it seemed to be an indirect way of saying we're no longer going to be pushing on the democracy agenda. And he did say that countries were free to have their own systems of governance and that people would not be interfering. And what really counts is that you have international order based on nation states. Is that a change that will work well for the Middle East? Well, one of the things that I've seen people say is, you know, these ideas were not new at the UN. It was just new that an American president had propounded this idea. Um, I think we're at the end of a cycle where um, I suppose the high point was 2005 where you know people at like Condoleezza Rice were really missionary about these things and um, it got into all areas of, of US diplomacy and it was really the agenda. I think what Trump is trying to recenter basically global diplomacy on, is the idea that every country is an active player and that entails that they take responsibility for their own security, they take responsibility for the security implications of what happens within their country and what they do. And if that's your starting point, then you basically deal with each other on a very pragmatic basis. And, you know, we can see how that would work if it's clear and if, you know, people don't fall into the temptation of pursuing their own agendas. So we are at a radical point of reorientation, which will suit many countries very well and could be actually a more pragmatic uh, world order in which countries basically stick by the rules of the road and try to work together when they can. Because one of the challenges also has been that America's military engagements have often led to a reduction of sovereignty. If you look at Afghanistan or you look at Iraq, where you know the U.S. military policed the streets for for years, but also could overrule local government. So, with Trump's statement also saying that they will not have these arbitrary timetables 
to withdraw troops. He was giving a message that saying, if we do go into a military campaign, we're going to see it out. But at the same time, saying that we want to support sovereignty and nation states, is there a contradiction in that? I think there were a lot of contradictions uh, in the speech. On the one hand, speaking about shared values, then saying we're not going to interfere in your sovereignty or how uh, you're going to govern, calling uh, the Assad regime a criminal uh, regime, but I'm not going to touch other authoritarian uh, uh, regimes or governments. I mean, we're talking about a guy who seems to have affinity to authoritarian uh, Leaders, he invited the president of Philippines uh, to to Washington. He has no problems with some dismal uh, records of human rights when he meets uh, uh, the Turkish president Erdogan or or others. So, I think there is a big discrepancy here that should be uh, that should be noted. But the timetable. I read it as a domestic uh, talking point. Uh, This is something he has said to his base during the election, that I am not uh, Barack Obama, and I will not put a withdrawal timeline to to leave uh, from Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, But yeah, the contradiction is there too, that the same same power uh, that destroyed Iraq is now lecturing about Sovereignty. I mean, it, it does give you a pause. So, of course, there's more to the General Assembly than Trump. We're going to have uh, dozens of speeches coming up each day until the end of this uh, general debate on uh, the following Monday. So I want to just touch upon a couple of the issues that have come up so far in New York. And one has been the role that French President Emmanuel Macron is trying to play, especially since the German Chancellor Angela Merkel is not here as she she, um, has her own elections back in Germany. So he's emerging as this liberal Western voice. And of course, it's also his first General Assembly meeting. So Damien, tell us what your assessment of Macron's uh, participation is so far. Well, I watched the speech. It was, in truth, um, a curious thing. He he took the stories of people that he'd met in various places, including Aleppo, uh, to the podium. And then he interspersed that with the real business that he wanted to get on with. So on climate change, he, he basically said, I respectfully disagree with the US decision to leave and we will make a success of it. Again, he put in a very strong defence of the Iran deal. Um, And he said, you know, it is verifiable, it does work, and you don't want to unplug that plug. And there are issues where Macron vividly paints himself in contrast to Trump. But he also gets on very well with Trump. So we have this curious, almost pact between them, where they don't agree on much, but they seem to be able to be cordial to each other, and that gives some hope that each can find some wriggle room with the other so that they can pragmatically work out the differences on these policies. So it's an intriguing relationship, I think, and I think it will set the tone, maybe not of what Trump decides to do, but how he does it and what is left to um, for the rest of the world to make this work, because you know, these things can be made to work. And and with someone as enterprising and as energetic as Macron, I think it is a useful lubricant in in what can be quite a scratchy time. 
He's also got interest, as you mentioned in his speech, he mentioned somebody from Aleppo. He's got a keen interest in Syria. And of course, French foreign policy generally has always been um, heavily involved when it comes to Syria. What do you think Macron's next steps are when it comes to trying to come to a peaceful resolution in Syria? Will he seek to get the discussions back to Geneva and away from Astana, what we've seen over the last few months? I think we did see a hint of that today. He said, look at Astana over the last few days. We see the limitations there. Uh, We believe we can pick up from that and create a new roadmap that refocuses the diplomacy. So I think, yes, he's very much looking for a bigger process and one that doesn't just simply address the smaller issues of deconfliction, some kind of negotiated stalemate between the parties that allows some element of um, uh, you know consolidation and he looks to get actually something that would allow rebuilding the country and you know tackling those really big issues that have been thrown up by the Syria conflict. So of course one of the key people to follow on the Syria file is the UN envoy to Syria Stefan de Mastura who continues his efforts to bring about a settlement in Syria. Uh, It was reported that he spoke at a private dinner and said that we might be looking towards the soft partition of Syria, which means accepting that there will be different zones of influence in Syria. Joyce, can you tell us about what we expect to see happen this week when it comes to Syria? And are we looking towards a partitioning of the country? Uh, I think Syria is uh, is taking a bigger chunk of uh, the agenda than uh, than expected. Uh, Tillerson meeting uh, uh, his Russian counterpart uh, Lavrov on day one. Uh, Demistura hinting at a private dinner about soft partition is is a statement uh, that acknowledges that the reality has changed in Syria. That different zones are already in place. You have uh, Nusra in the uh, north for. For example, in, in Idlib, uh, you have uh, a de-escalation uh, zone in the south where Jordan, uh, Russia, and the U.S. Uh, are helping. And then you have the areas liberated from ISIS that are uh, now very much in the hands of the uh, Kurdish force that's trained by the U.S. And Assad controls very much most of the Cities. So, uh, in a sense, I think the the, the world powers are turning uh, the page on everything we've heard in the past few years about uh, about Syria. Uh, I think you know, calling on Assad to step down and uh, speaking about red lines is is no more. I think the new line is to just try to stop the violence and bring the opposition to accept some realities and sign uh, sign off to what uh, Damien was saying about Macron, a roadmap to accept uh, these realities, whether related to Assad or to these uh, zones of influence. Syria is among the top issues that the UN will be looking at. As um, Joyce, you highlighted, there are too many unknown dynamics ongoing there. But of course, there are other areas of crisis from Myanmar to Yemen, Libya, and Venezuela, to mention just a few. We'll be following all of those stories 
at the National. So pick up your copy of the National either in the UAE or pick up a special copy of the National here in New York, where we're printing our special UN General Assembly copy. Otherwise, please visit the National online at www.thenational.ae or follow us on Twitter at the National UAE. Damien and Joyce, thank you so much for joining me. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Beyond the Headlines. <laughs>